You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. Okay, sitting in my makeshift recording studio here in my closet. Gonna give Julia a call and we will try this out. Hello. Hi, Julia. How are you? Good. How are you? How was your week? Oh, pretty good. I'm trying to figure out... That's MIT alumna Julia Yu, undergraduate class of 2010 and Sloan MBA class of 2014. I'm Brielle Domings, the multimedia producer and editor for the MIT Alumni Association. Julia and I recently spoke remotely, safely ensconced in our respective DIY recording studios on opposite U.S. coasts. As of this recording, we're both working remotely due to the current impacts of the COVID-19 crisis. Julia is the host of the podcast MIT Catalysts, a production of the MIT Alumni Club of Northern California. The podcast launched in September of 2019. She sat down with Slice of MIT to talk about her experience with hosting the podcast so far. This was a brand new world to me. This isn't my day job, but it's such a breath of fresh air. And I feel like I'm a a detective in a way, just learning and listening and uncovering different uh, fun facts and truths about our guest speakers. So it's, it's been a blast. Julia works on the podcast with producer and fellow MIT alumna Irina Fisher Huang, undergraduate class of 2011 and Master of Engineering in 2012. Each episode features in-depth conversations with entrepreneurs in the Bay Area, many of whom are MIT alumni. Today on the Slice of MIT podcast, we're excited to share a recent episode from MIT Catalysts. Julia interviews John Whaley, a member of the MIT class of 1999 and founder of the tech company Unify ID. But before we get into the episode, we'll talk with Julia about how she went from a podcast aficionado to hosting one. She'll also share advice for other MIT alumni clubs that might want to start a podcast of their own. All right. Well, welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for being on the Slice of MIT podcast. We're so excited to be featuring one of the MIT Catalysts podcast episodes and talking to you about your work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you just tell me a little bit about what is the MIT Catalyst podcast? Sure. Uh, So MIT Catalyst is all about showcasing innovators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are MIT alumni, faculty, and affiliates in the Bay Area. And, you know, our goal is really to get a glimpse into the lives of some of these amazing people and walk away with some connection and inspiration. That's great. So how did the idea for this podcast come about? You know, I'm an avid podcast listener, and when I moved to the Bay Area uh, five, six years ago, um, you know, I found myself having really interesting and awesome conversations with the MIT alumni and community base here. And I just thought, hey, you know, I would love to share some of these uh, conversations and showcase some of the people that I'm meeting here. Uh, so that was really the impetus behind the podcast is to, um, you know, really Uh, showcase our alumni and have our listeners feel as if they are part of a conversation and get a glimpse into the lives, particularly, um, you know, those entrepreneurs and innovators who are really making a better world out here. So what is your favorite part of hosting this podcast? You know, I I think it's really listening to everyone's story, even if a guest we have has been in the same industry and function as a previous guest speaker. Everyone's story is so different. And I just love uncovering the hidden talents and fun facts about each of our speakers that you wouldn't be able to find anywhere on the internet or just from reading about somebody. 
So if another MIT alumni club wanted to start a podcast, what would be three pieces of advice that you could give them? Oh, boy. All right. Well, only three. Uh, I think the first one would be to understand your purpose and really understand what your mission and goal of the podcast is. And for us, you know, it, it, we experimented with different things and we ultimately landed on, hey, you know, we really wanted to have an entrepreneurship and innovative bend to our podcast. But I think that's really important to know because that will just ground the foundations of the whole program and who you want to uh, showcase, uh, how you want to go about the questions. So understanding your purpose is number one. And then the second is the logistics, right? Invest in the right equipment and talent. Nobody wants to listen to a podcast that's fuzzy and subpar audio quality. So really do your research, invest in the right equipment. And then the third advice would be for the host, I would say, you know, just make sure to have good active listening skills. And if if the goal is to have one-to-one interviews, uh, you know, make sure you do your research beforehand. Think about the types of questions you want to ask them. But at the same time, don't have it be so scripted, right? Because every every conversation is going to go differently and you want to have that flexibility for it to feel organic and to go in the direction that it leads. So what has been the most surprising outcome of this podcast for you? I think it's a third thing I just touched on, which is, uh, you know, initially, um, initially, we had a very rigid set of questions. And then we quickly found that, hey, you know, this it doesn't always go that way. And it wasn't so fun just following a script. Along the way, you just learn some really uh, just fun and surprising things. Uh, so you know, I, I think that's been the biggest surprise is just how different and interesting each episode has been. So I know that currently, obviously, you're not able to interview your guests because of the current situation with COVID-19. So what's going on for you guys right now in terms of, you know, navigating this this tricky climate? Yeah, I th- you know, obviously, all in-person meetings have been off the table And, you know, we're all trying to figure out how to do this remote recording at home and, you know, hiding in our closets or wherever to to get good audio. Um, But, uh, you know, I think the bigger impact that the that this pandemic has had is um, it's just truly recalibrated our priorities and everything that seemed urgent and important last month has suddenly been thrown out the window And I think now more than ever, uh, you know, we need to band together as a community, uh, get past our differences and just help in each other in any way we can. You know, even if we're not a healthcare worker on the front lines, uh, which, by the way, we hope to um, interview some uh, great alumni who are doctors and are on the front lines uh, in future episodes. Um, But, you know, even if we're not that, you know, just staying home. Uh, not hoarding toilet paper, helping uh, groceries for an elder. You know, there's a million ways we can help each other. Uh, So, you know, I think that overall, obviously, this has been very scary and unprecedented for everybody. But the silver lining is, you know, I've seen just so much goodness and community building uh, already come out of this. How how do you think that, you know, this podcast could make you know, at least the MIT alumni community feel more connected in this time? You know, I hope that 
this, this podcast is one of the vehicles to make those feel connected and know that the community is here for you. And, you know, we, you know, people are being creative, right? Like I've, I've heard of virtual Zoom happy hours. I've heard of people having dinners over Zoom together. You know, it's certainly not conventional, but I think that, uh, you know, we are a community of problem solvers and thinking on our feet. And I hope that, you know, this podcast is one of the ways that people can feel connected to uh, MIT and the broader Bay Area. So I was wondering if you could give us a little background on the episode we're about to hear with John Whaley, who is the MIT class of 1999. Could you just give us a little background and explain to our listeners what we're about to hear? Sure. Uh, John was Uh, Super fun to interview. He has an interesting background transitioning from academia to entrepreneurship. Obviously, you're going to hear that in the episode, but you hear both the technical uh, and the academic and entrepreneurial side of him shining in the interview. Uh, I I thought he gave very honest and open uh, advice and feedback about his journey thus far, having uh, founded two companies. He gives very actionable advice for anyone who's thinking about or uh, already running a company today. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the episode further, but you know, I would just encourage everyone with an interest in startups to listen to this episode. You can find more info on the MIT Catalyst podcast by visiting the MIT Alumni Club of Northern California's website at mitcnc.org slash podcasts. Now here's the MIT Catalyst episode with John Whaley, MIT class of 1999. Welcome to the MIT Catalysts, a podcast series by the MIT Club of Northern California. Each episode, host Julia Yu interviews MIT alumni, faculty, and affiliates who are movers and shakers in the Bay Area. Hi, everybody. I have here John Whaley, who is an entrepreneur, CEO, and founder of Unify ID with us today. Could you tell us a little bit more about your ventures? Sure. I started one company um, out of Stanford. I was uh, a PhD student there, and then we started uh, started one company. Eventually, um, that one got acquired, and then started my second company, which is my my current company, Unify ID. Can you tell us more about Unify ID? Yeah, so we do authentication. We can authenticate people based on passive factors, the way that they walk or their their unique behavior. It's called behavioral biometrics, and it's, it's much more convenient than using passwords or other traditional forms of authentication. Great. So starting Unify ID and being a second-time entrepreneur, what did you do differently? What did you learn from the first one? Gosh, I mean, uh, I think the first time around, we probably made just about every mistake that you could. Um, you know, one one of which is you know, one big lesson is is learning um, when you're when you're raising money about uh, who to raise money from and and making sure you're well aligned with with your investors. Um, you know, this I, I think that that was the the biggest uh, the biggest single um, lesson from the first time around uh, that that we really incorporated the second time around. Great. Any other surprises? Yeah, I mean, so the first time uh, I was a founder and, and CTO, um, you know, which was quite different than the CEO role. The um, the 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 CEO role, you know, as I've discovered this time around, has been a lot. Um, it's been uh, a lot more comprehensive, and uh, you know, at the when I was a CTO, at the end of the day, I can always go home and then feel like I had accomplished something, or that that uh, that um, you know I I made a significant dent in, in what needed to get done. 
when you're the CEO, everything eventually just uh, follows falls up to you. Um, and so, regardless of how hard you work or how much you do, you 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 feel like you, you've never actually done enough. Um, and so that was one big difference. I mean, the other difference is that in a CEO role, um, it's really much more about people management and about uh, recruiting and retaining and you know keeping those that team motivated. And so it was much more about helping other people to be effective than uh, than me being effective myself. Do you like being a CEO? Yes, I, I mean, I would. I I didn't realize that I would uh, enjoy entrepreneurship um, so much, but but now I've I've done it, and and this is my second time around. I think you know whenever whatever however this. Uh, this one ends up. I think I'll be back for more. I think it's just, uh, it's just there, there's a natural um, type of person that is naturally a builder and likes to build things, and you know can't can't stay away. I've, I've discovered that that's my personality as well. So I think regardless of what happens here, I think I'll, the, the next I'll I'll be back for more regardless of whenever it happens. When did he catch the entrepreneurship bug? Was it at MIT or was it during your PhD program? Did you always know that you would have a startup? I didn't know. I didn't. I mean, I kind of fell into it. I um, I originally was planning to be a professor. I had gone to uh, Stanford. I'd done my PhD. I actually interviewed at MIT and and a, a few other places as well. Um, you know, I was really. I had my sights set high for um, for that faculty position. Um, I didn't get my faculty offer from MIT, so I I you know kind of took that opportunity to to. Um, think about what was really important in my life and what, like why I had been striving to, you know, try to be a, a, a professor and a faculty member. And for me, it was always about impact and, you know, wanting to have a big, uh, big impact. And originally I was thinking that would be an impact in terms of being a, being a professor, doing great research, having great students. But then, you know, I, I realized that you could have an impact in different ways. And so uh, the opportunity came along to actually join a, a company at the very earliest stages. Um, and that was my first company, Mocha 5. And, uh, you know, effectively what it was is, um, you know, there was a research project that was going on. We met with Vinod Kosla, who is, um, you know, founder of Kosla Ventures and uh, founder of Sun. And, you know, he basically said, here's $3 million, go build something cool. And so I thought that was a that was a really interesting opportunity. I was at this crossroads in my life, so then that's I, I decided to move forward with that, and it, I I haven't looked back. And that, you know, meanwhile, um, you know, I was able to go back. I became a visiting lecturer at Stanford, so I was able still able to get um, some of that. You know, interact with students and and go and teach classes and such. But you know, it it, it turned out very well. So you get the best of both worlds. You still get to be a builder, but you also still get to be a professor. So you get to see both the academia and the industry side of things. Yeah, and and you know, I think my my background is maybe a little bit atypical, especially for a, you know a, a startup CEO. Many of many uh, CEOs, you know, come more from the business background, sales background. I'm mine was much more of a technical background, and you know, again, doing my PhD and such. And rather than kind of shy away from that and, and try to pretend I was somebody I wasn't, I just fully embraced it. You know, I kept my PhD on my on my business cards. I would attend, you know, academic conferences and then go and talk about machine learning or security or these type of things, um, which has actually uh, paid off really well at our at my current company because not all not all CEOs are able to do that, right? And so the fact that I, I was able to then go and um, you know talk with people like at their level and then it was great for credibility in terms of we have we now have you know. 
what are 15 peer-reviewed publications like in this space. So that's really a differentiator in terms of um, on the technology side when you look at, at some other companies trying to do similar things. And also for recruiting, like this is these are the type of places of the the, the type of people uh, where the type of people that we want to um, recruit would typically congregate. And the fact I was able to go there and not as you know, um, and have a, have a career fair booth and, you know, try to attract people like that, but go and have a, a keynote speech or, you know, a, a technical presentation and then engage with people, uh, you know, technical people on their level, then, uh, that, that certainly has helped a lot. So, I mean, my, my biggest advice for anyone who's trying to do this is like, don't try to be, don't try to pretend to be someone else, just really embrace, um, who you are and what you're good at. And then people will naturally, and I can want, want to follow you and, and naturally, you know, uh, gravitate you to you. And then you'll end up having more success than if you try to, pre, you know, pretend that you're something that you're not. Great advice. So when you recruit a team, one theme that we hear over and over again is getting the people right. What type of people do you look for? Is there a certain persona or do you have a certain framework for this? Yeah, this is something that I put a lot of thought into, especially this being the second time around, a little, learned, learned a lot of lessons the first time around, around you know, you really want to have the right DNA and the right gene pool in the company when you're early on, uh, because that really determines the future of the company and the success or failure of your of your company is largely determined by those early employees, right? And, you know, you think about it almost in terms of, you know, in biology as well, if you have too much of a monoculture, it's too many of the same type of people, then, uh, then you know, that leads to problems down the road, you know, because whenever you have, like, there's not enough diversity in your gene pool, then um, all traits get accentuated, like whether positive or negative. And then so, you know, ultimately what you want to try to build is a company that can incorporate a lot of different diverse viewpoints and experience and to do that in a way uh, where you can still be productive. So it's you want to have shared values, but then a kind of, you know, not have everyone be exactly the same in terms of experience and background. And so when you look for people, I mean, one uh, one natural thing when you're looking for people to join a startup is you don't want to find somebody who's just interested in doing one particular thing or is good at like one particular thing because chances are... Uh, Six months from now, um, you're not gonna. You're whatever you hired them for, they're gonna have to do something else. So you want people who are gonna be like autodidactic, like you qu- very just quick learners and be able to learn by themselves and and be able to jump into a new area and then uh, do really well. You also want to find people who they may not be there right now but you know you feel like that they have the potential to be the future leaders of the company because the people that you have early the best the best case scenario is that the people that you have early are the people that are going to be able to grow with the company and then they're going to be able to you know have those future leadership roles now that's not always the case like in case sometimes you have people that you know they're very good for one particular phase of the company and then you know as the company grows or matures then they may not be the, the appropriate people but you it's always good to have uh, to, to look for people who have that you feel like have that type of potential and you know many many times the people are looking that t- for that type of opportunity i mean if you could join a large company it's a long road to be able to you know reach up to uh, to the leadership ranks and something like that where whereas if you join in a smaller company it's really at the ground floor and then there's a much more of an opportunity to prove yourself and then have that leadership role um, in the future so who is your inspiration as an entrepreneur gosh uh, there's um there's so many people that, um, especially in Silicon Valley, um, and we look at like, um, you know, yeah, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to name uh, just one. Um, 
yeah, I have to think. I have to think about that a little bit. There's, um, but if you look really the the ethos in in Silicon Valley, and this was this was um, somewhat true when I was in MIT. I mean, I, I graduated in 1999, um, but I think it's becoming more and more true at MIT as well. There is like a, this a little bit of a culture of of entrepreneurship that's especially true at Stanford and in Silicon Valley as well. And the fact that there's not only those um, those individuals uh, there who just can't help themselves but go and go and start companies, uh, but also all the the people around them, the entire supporting cast. There's you know um, there is venture capitalists, there are lawyers, there are office managers. There's uh, like there's an entire ecosystem as well um, that really makes um, something like that possible right and then so i think a lot of the success or you know the the success stories that have happened in in silicon valley are um are, are due to much of that the entire ecosystem that is there great uh, and another theme that comes up with entrepreneurs is perseverance. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs when they are kind of at that precipice of what do I do next? Do I keep going? Do I shut down? Uh, do I pivot? This is um, this is a tricky, tricky problem because um, absolutely anything that's worth doing, it's going to require perseverance and it's going to require, you're going to really have to, um, there's going to, there will be a lot of hard times like period. There'll be times where it's, you know, it could be financial hardships. It could be hardships based on customers or product or, you know, a, a lot of things that, that, that can and will happen. You fully expect them to, to happen. Right. And, uh, you have, in order to be successful, you have to be able to work your way th- through all of those. Right. Um, the, but the, on the flip side, there are, if you look around just in the, in, in Silicon Valley, especially, there's a lot of startups that you know that are not that are not great. I mean, their products are not great, and like, and the, because there's a lot of capital around, and then it's not that that hard to be able to find somebody to just give you some money, and then, and especially with your, you know, if if it's a software startup, you don't really need that like a huge amount of capital, and so you can kind of keep going and keep going, and so you know, it's a little bit frustrating from. Uh, on the recruiting side where it's like, well, okay, we have a, we have a great company and a great idea and like, you know, track growing traction, all of this. Um, And then a lot of the talent ends up being locked up in companies where, okay, maybe if like, if fundraising was not quite as, uh, as free flowing, then those ones um, would, would naturally die. And then, uh, then the people that are locked up in there would be able to then go on to do um, better and greater things. So I think ultimately like this has to come, that these doesn't have to come from within you, within yourself, like realize that there absolutely will be hard times and, you know, and you don't have to back down like when there, when you do have hard times, whether it's like you're running out of money or like a customer contract, you know, blows up or something else happens, um, uh, really negative. You lose a key member of your staff, things like that. All those things will happen and you just have to be able to roll with the punches and keep going. But, you know, at some point then if you do say that if, if you're able to take an honest look at it and then say, okay, now, okay, it's, it's, this isn't working out. Now's the time to throw in a towel or more commonly is to, to pivot and then to decide to like this, let this try a different tact. Right. And, um, it, when you're, in the middle of it, it's really, really hard to do that because you can't really see the forest from the trees. But it's really good to have people that you really trust that you can talk to and who will tell you things, you know, tell you things honestly. They say, why are you doing this? This isn't going to work. You know, it's very valuable to have those type of people. You know, you have 
they kind of called the kitchen cabinet. These are the people who it's like, you may have cabinet positions that are official positions. These are people who you implicitly trust and will go, uh, and will go to and, you know, try to get adva- advice and they'll give you very honest advice. And so many times like having conversations with those type of people, then you'll be able to take a step back and then look at, uh, look at the whole thing from a, a wider lens and a wider perspective and then determine, okay, should I keep persevering or should I then, um, you know, pivot and, and try something new? Could you tell us a little bit more about the types of people in your kitchen cabinet? Is it uh, people in your company, outside your company, investors, friends, family, or a mix? Yeah, these are people who are not within the company or in fact, like have no real vested interest in the company, uh, but have known uh, through the years and and really trust their judgment. And sometimes, you know, it's it's people who had who were mentors or advisors in the past. Maybe these are people who um, who had had some type of success and then you know are are you know continuing to um, you know to engage with the community and give back and uh, uh, these uh, these types of things. They um, but you know I think it's important when you're talking about the, for those type of people that they're actually. These are actually different people and separate people than the people who are within the company or who are on your board or like kind of direct investors in the company, things like that, uh, because they're going to have uh, they're going to have their own their own perspective that's going to be colored by their involvement, existing involvement in the in your company. How do you find a co-founder? What is the secret sauce there? Yeah, it's uh, this is a really this is a really difficult thing to find like a good co-founder because the the number one reason why startups um, fail. I mean, the number one is they can't raise money like the first time around. The number two reason is basically founder to founder conflicts. Um, and so if you think about when you are going to found, start a company with someone, it's almost like you're getting married. I mean, you're probably spending more time with your co-founder than you would with your actual spouse. So, um, it's, it is important to, to approach and just to, you know, if you just meet somebody and think, oh yeah, this seem this person seems to be interested in the same kind of things. Let's go start a company together. Um, that may not work out well. I mean, you may, you may end up, uh, not on speaking terms or so the the best uh the best results they've seen is is ones that where people had worked uh together before i mean so something where they had maybe they worked at the same company they worked on similar projects you know what it's like to work together you know like it's a very important when you have uh co-founders that everyone knows what their role is if you have two people that are you know for example two people that are both highly technical and there's any kind of question around oh, who should be in charge of engineering or technology or the architecture? And you have two people who are both very good. That's uh, that's not a good recipe for success. So what I'm hearing is it's good to have co-founders who have complementary skills, not clones of each other. Yeah, uh, complementary skills, we have to have a shared set of values. And then you have to have a very um, good understanding before you even get started of what is each person's role and then and and what is expected of them. What do you advise against friends starting companies together? Uh, not, not necessarily. I mean, th- those can, those can sometimes be people that you, uh, that you know very well. Somebody who's like, you only know socially, like may seem like, oh, this, this person's really cool. And like, I feel like I can get along with them. Starting a company is a totally different thing. So, um, it's much better to have an experience where you've actually worked together on something where you've actually, you've worked on the same team or you've, uh, you've collaborated, you know, closely on something. So you really understand what it's like to work with them. Because outside of not being able to like raise that that first that or that next round of funding, 
the, the co-founder issues are the number one reason why my startups um, end up failing. And it doesn't really have to be that way. I mean, uh, it's just, uh, you know, when you have people and personalities and egos get involved, then that's where, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential, potential landmines. So I just say, be careful. Like if you're going to start a company, the other piece is don't be afraid. Like if you, if you have a great idea and you don't have, another co-founder to do it with um don't don't be afraid to just jump in and, and do it yourself you don't need to have multiple co-founders in fact like things are often a lot easier if you're just a solo founder and so don't don't be scared to go and and jump and jump in and do it don't feel like well i i have this idea so i need to find someone else there are plenty of success stories of, of individual founders who have gone on to uh to build great companies what is your entrepreneurship secret sauce my uh so i think my my entrepreneurship secret sauce is um like i mentioned before it's just really be yourself and then and embrace um who you are don't try to be someone else um like you know lean into your strengths if you're a technical person be as as the the best technical person that you can possibly be if you're going to if you're on the business side or partnerships or sales like be the best that you possibly can be um in those areas and don't try to pretend to be someone else cuz people ultimately see through it and then you know it's 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 not going to be successful for you thank you so much john whaley great thanks for having me thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the MIT catalysts this episode was hosted by Julia Yu and produced by me, Irina Fisher-Huang. Special thanks to our guest, John Whaley, for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks also to the MIT Club of Northern California, which sponsors this podcast. Make sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. We hope you enjoyed our first MIT Catalyst episode of the new decade, and make sure to tune in to our upcoming episodes. We've got a great slate of interviews lined up for 2020 that you won't want to miss. Until next time, we're the MIT Catalysts. Thanks to Julia Yu, Irina Fisher-Huang, and the MIT Alumni Club of Northern California for sharing this episode of the MIT Catalyst podcast with us. Tweet us your thoughts on this episode at MIT underscore alumni. If you'd like to hear more stories from the MIT community, subscribe to the Slice of MIT podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate the podcast and leave us a review. Also check out our website at Slice, that's S-L-I-C-E, .mit.edu. Thanks for listening.